This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Jenny Brown. I'm really delighted to be chairing this event. I think it's an inspired pairing of two uh, exceptional writers. and I, I know you'll feel the same by the end of the hour. We're going to talk, we're going to uh, have some readings, and then for the last 10 or 15 minutes, there'll be time for you to ask your questions. Um, so, the mid-19th century. You might be thinking, what unites the Sami people of Lapland and a band of crofters from northwest Scotland? And in the fictional worlds of Cecilia Eckback and Graham McRae Burnett, each community has witnessed a brutal triple murder. So today we're going to be talking about church, about class, about land ownership and weather as we discuss their very ingenious second novels, both of them thrillers, Eckback's In the Month of the Midnight Sun, there we go, and <laughs> Graham McRae oh, Burnett's His Bloody pro Project. <laughs> and um, I think we need a, an extra burst of applause because Graham has just been long-listed for the Man Booker International oh, Prize, yes. which has delighted all of us. We don't need to mention that again, do we? <laughs> we may have to. We're also <laughs> delighted about it. But a really warm welcome to you both. Cecilia, Hi. are you going to start us off and yes. tell us a little bit about the extraordinary world that you've created Thank you in so this much. novel? Well, I blame... Now, am I too loud? Or is it okay? It's okay. Uh, I blame um, the, the way this book turned out. I blame it on setting it in Midnight Sun, I must say. It was supposed to be a very different book. Um, and then I set it in Midnight Sun. And I don't know if any one of you have been in Midnight Sun. <coughs> it's really yep. spectacular. It is... Um, when it starts in the summer, it's, it's all exuberant, you're all joyful, you're all sort of, you have all this energy, you wake up, it's day, you go to bed, it's day. But very soon this eerie kind of feeling sets in and um, it is, um, and I think it is probably because you sleep too little. But suddenly it seems perfectly plausible that one of these mythological figures will show up beside you or, or um, when you're out, you always seem to be out and about that you will sort of encounter and that something will happen. So it gives this sort of eerie quality to life and, and this is what happened to my book. And um, it's interesting because I'm very interested in um, place and setting and the impact it has on um, the characters. But I didn't think it would have an impact on me as a writer but it did. It was a very frustrating <laughs> experience to write this book. Um, it sort of, it, it went to the forest basically, it took its own path and, and I kind of taggled along. But um, anyway, it's uh, three more murders that have taken place on a mountain called Black Orson and they're said to be have, done, have been done by a Sami perpetrator. And Magnus, a, mineral, a mineralogist, or as we call them today, a, a geologist, um, is sent north to investigate. And with him, a young woman who is sent away for misbehaving, her name is Lovisa. And they meet a, <coughs> a third woman, um, a Sami woman named Bia. And um, all of them are lost in, in their own ways. And, and um, in many ways, this is a book about maps. And we will talk about this later, so I, I won't say anything more right now. But I thought I'd read. It's got a lot of voices. And this voice is Nila. He's a Noyade, or as we would probably call them today, a, a Sami shaman. Um, I need to tell you a story. It is not pleasant, but it's important. You see, everything has a spirit. 
the stones on the ground, the trees around you. Some are good, some are bad, some are helpful, others not. You learn to navigate. When I was 12 years old, my father taught me a lesson. By then I had seen how he was always able to find prey, how the spirits warned him when danger was close, how they helped him find passage when snow closed the mountains. We all knew that the spirit in Black Orson, that is the mountain they're on, was the most powerful, and I had begun to think that if a person could tame that, nothing would ever stand in their way. I hadn't said anything, but my father knew. I guess they told him. One winter day, he took me out into the forest, the skies, fires above us, sounds of a giant blaze. We made a fire and sat down, my father with his eyes closed, singing a song of old. Spirits came to sit with us. I saw hare, hawk, and wolf. But my father was looking for something different. Come, come, spirit of the marsh, he sang. The spirit animals left us, and I understood how different this one was. It took time, but she came. A girl child, greenish skin. Her long hair hung wet down her back. Her eyes glowed black. I must have smiled at her, for her lips separated like a mirror of my expression. Then I noticed that where she should have had fingers, there were white thin claws. How we fought. She ran circles around us, giggling, as if it were a game. One of her strikes sliced my arm from my elbow all the way down to my wrist. I still have the scar. We had to call on Bear to help us tie her, and even with his help, I wasn't certain would manage. When the girl was finally gone, my father and I lay on the snow. My arm throbbed, the pain so great that my breath came out in jerky gasps. I didn't dare to look at the wound. This is nothing compared to Black Orson, my father said, eyes closed. If you call on something you cannot master, it will master you. Remember this. Remember this? Oh, how I wish I could forget. But a person cannot unsee. He cannot unlive. That night would come to change me more than my father understood. We came back to the camp and it was early morning. People went about their chores, laughed, teased, but I was changed. I had been set apart. Nothing could ever again be the same. I didn't want this. The gift is a burden. It's a curse. But there was scant choice. The spirits are as real as you and I. And what do you think they would do if they thought you were no longer listening? Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Cecilia, for starting us off. Graham, do you want to just uh, tell us a bit about um, his bloody project? I will. Um, yeah, it's the, the novel's about uh, a triple murder in a tiny crofting community in Wester Ross, or Rossshire, as it was known at the time, it's set in 1869. Um, we know from the very beginning that the murders have been committed by a 17-year-old crofter called uh, Roddy McRae. Uh, and the book uh, is subtitled uh, Documents Relating to the Case of Roderick McRae, and it's structured as a series of found documents. So we have some witness statements from uh, members of the uh, residents of the village. We have post-mortem reports. We have a memoir written by a psychiatrist who examines Roddy in prison. And we have a kind of journalistic report of Roddy's trial. But the kind of heart of the book, the longest part of the book, is uh, Roddy McRae's own prison memoir, which he writes uh, in Inverness jail while he's awaiting trial. 
Uh, so I'm just going to read a couple of quite short extracts. Um, <coughs> going to stand up. Uh, I'm not tall enough down there. <laughs> uh, so this is from this is the opening of uh, Roddy McRae's account. So Inverness Jail, September 1869. I'm writing this at the behest of my advocate, Mr. Andrew Sinclair who since my incarceration here in Inverness has treated me with a degree of civility I in no way deserve. My life has been short and of little consequence, and I have no wish to absolve myself of responsibility for the deeds I have lately committed. It is thus for no other reason than to repay my advocate's kindness towards me that I commit these words to paper. Mr. Sinclair has instructed me to set out with as much clarity as possible the circumstances surrounding the murder of Lachlan Mackenzie and the others. And this I will do to the best of my ability, apologizing in advance for the poverty of my vocabulary and rudeness of style. I should begin by saying that I carried out these acts with the sole purpose of delivering my father from the tribulations he has lately suffered. The cause of these tribulations was our neighbour, Lachlan Mackenzie, and it was for the betterment of my family's lot that I have removed him from this world. I should further state that since my own entry into the world, I've been nothing but a blight to my father, and my departure from his household can only be a blessing to him. My name is Roderick John McRae. I was born in 1852 and have lived all my days in the village of Kuldui in Rossshire. My father, John McRae, is a crofter of good standing in the parish who does not deserve to be tarnished with the ignominy of the actions for which I alone am responsible. My mother died in the birthing of my brother Ian in 1868. And it is this event which, in my mind, marks the beginning of our troubles. I'm just going to read another very short uh, couple of paragraphs. <coughs> As I mentioned, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the beginning of the book, we have uh, various statements from residents in the village. And we're going to get conflicting views of, of Roddy. Some people think he was a nice young man, other people less so. Um, and just to give a flavour of these conflicting voices, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the local minister, uh, who is a character through a minor character throughout the novel. I think we might talk about um, the role of um, of God. Um, <laughs> God, oh no! Uh, let's not go there. <laughs> Statement of the Reverend James Galbraith, minister at the Church of Scotland, Camisterich, 13th of August, 1869. I fear the wicked deeds lately committed in this parish only represent a bubbling to the surface of the natural state of savagism of the inhabitants of this place. A savagism that the church has, has of late been... Actually, my eyesight's going. I need, I need the reading glasses. Um, it's, in, it's now in the, the zone of no seeing. Uh, so I can either read like this or like this. <coughs> a savagism that the church has of late been successful in suppressing. The history of these parts, it has been said, 
is stained with black and bloody crimes, and its people exhibit a certain wildness and indulgence, and such traits cannot be bred out in a matter of generations. While the teachings of the presbytery are a civilizing influence, it is inevitable that now and again the old instincts come to the fore. Nonetheless, one cannot fail to be shocked on hearing of acts such as those committed in Kaldui. Of all the inhabitants of this parish, however, one is least surprised to hear that Roddy McRae is the perpetrator. Although this individual has attended my church since childhood, I always sensed that my sermons fell on his ears as seeds on stony ground. I must accept that his crimes represent, in some degree, a failure on my part, but sometimes one must sacrifice a lamb for the general good of the flock. There was always a wickedness, easily discernible about that boy, which I regret to say was beyond my reach. Thank you. Thank you both. Let's start by mm. talking about setting. Mm. These are both, the, the murders happen in remote places and it takes a while for the establishment to come in mm. and make pronouncements. Mm. Your mountain. Mm. It doesn't exist, does it? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It seems very real. It, it seems, seems very, very real. real it's it's, um, the nature is w what I remember from, from my childhood growing up, w where we used to sort of spend um, the summers, but it doesn't exist for real, no. But you uh, visited <coughs> this uh, location, first of all, in your first novel. Yes, I did, yeah. 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 And um, what made you want to return to it again, and, but, but bring the time scale forward by well, a, by well, a century? Yeah, so I, I'm absolutely fascinated by this sort of, um, uh, how much do we inherit and how much does the place we grow up in affect us? And, and I love to sort of play with that and, and see that. And, and, um, and I guess um, Black Horse and Mountain for me represents what I felt like growing up in Sweden. That was the religious sort of fervor, fervor? Yeah, that's the word, okay? Religious fervor, that was the sort of um, uh, the fear. And um, I guess it wasn't done with me yet. So I then thought, well, I'll stay there, but I'll, I'll sort of move it forward. And um, which had its own challenges, I must say, because um, what was great is you know this mountain inside out you, you, because you've written about a book about it, you've spent four years with it. What's really bad is that you know this mountain inside out. <laughs> and it's really hard to describe it then a second time and make sure that you don't repeat yourself, especially if you like to work with um, weather and um, climate and uh, what's growing, vegetation and so on. So that's why the main character, uh, Magnus, um, had to become, or I thought he'll become a geologist, mm -hmm. because he'll then see the mountain in a completely different way from um, what the people in the first book, how they would have seen it. So that was one of the reasons that then gave me a new access point, if you like, to, to the mountain. And what was happening in Sweden <coughs> at that point in the 19th century that you know, attracted you as a, as a timing? Um, I like, um, I like uh, times of upheaval, if you like. I like when a lot of things are changing and when people feel 
uncertain as to where it's going to go. Uh, I like to sort of have that hanging over them, that they're not quite certain what the future will look like. And industrialization came quite late to Sweden um, compared to sort of England and, and other countries. And this was when it was all sort of um, kicking off for Sweden, if you like. And, and there was a lot of questions regarding sort of, um, um, you know, the, the old, the old um, state system um, that was still in place was no longer representing society. People felt alienated. Um, some people wanted the change really badly. Other ones didn't want it. So you have this sort of this tearing um, forces in society. And, and I just like those kind of periods. Mm. I, li I, li I think that just adds something um, to, to sort of um, to the writing and, yeah, mm. and spending time there. Yeah. And Graham Kaldui. Yes. Why <laughs> did you choose? I, I just, did uh, you, yeah, uh, it's, it's near Applecross, isn't it? It's about two miles, two or three miles from yeah. Applecross. Well, a lot of people have visited Applecross, and if you go a little further, beyond Applecross, um, you can thank Kodu, but please don't all go there, because <laughs> uh, I sense I may not be the most popular person in that village. Um, I mean, the, the initial idea for the novel was for, um, uh, and I, I use this word without any sort of derogatory sense, because I got told off for it, it was to tell the story of a peasant who committed a murder and then wrote a prison memoir about it. It was kind of inspired by a case in France in the early 19th century, a, a guy called Pierre Rivière, who does who committed three murders and then wrote a very eloquent memoir about it. It's a remarkable book. And I, I came across it when I was a student at Glasgow University, and it always totally fascinated me. Uh, so I, that was kind of a, an inspiration, and then also to tell the story through a series of documents. Um, my mother's side of the family is from Westeros, uh, from a nearby village called Loch Arran. Uh, so having spent, you know, gone up to that area of the country all my life and knowing you know, knowing it to some degree, I mean, I'm not a local, uh, it seemed quite natural to take the story I had in my head and set it there. And uh, I had a very, when it comes to sort of uh, locations um, in both the novels I've written, I've got a very, very clear picture in my head of what they look like. And uh, so I went, I went up to Westeros and with a kind of couple of villages that I was going to victimise <laughs> by using them as a setting for my novel because in the, in the, in the book when Roddy commits his murders he, he walks from one end of the village to the other and uh, so uh, in my head I already had a village which was a single street um, and Kaldui fitted the bill. It's also because of where it is, it's, it's even Apple, Apple Cross seems like a metropolis <laughs> in comparison to Kaldui. Uh, so, um, it was, in terms of picking the location, mm. it was kind of just knowing that, that, that area. Um, in terms of the time period, um, you know, just when I started reading about, you know, the history of the Highlands, which I was actually woefully ignorant about, um, and I didn't want to write a novel that was set against the backdrop of the Highland clearances, um, simply because I was more interested in the psychology of the, the characters rather than sort of political aspects. Uh, so the clearances generally kind of finished towards the end of 1840. Clearances did continue after that. Um, and the other sort of pivotal event in, was the Napier Commission, which was the first time that uh, Crofters' uh, views about their situation were heard, and that was in 1883. So I was kind of narrowing it down. And then there's a, there's a character called James Bruce Thompson in the novel who writes his memoir 
or I extract from his memoir. Uh, he was a real he was a real character, and he was a general surgeon. He was a surgeon at the general prison for Scotland in Perth, which was where Scotland's criminally insane were housed. And he died in 1873. So I just kind of narrowed the period down. So it was a period of sort of relative stability. Um, but before the crofters' rights were recognised mm. and there was the start of some sort of improvements. And just in relation to, mm. in reading about this, you realise that even at this time in the Scottish Highlands, the state was quite remote. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the nearest police force was in Dingwall, 70 miles away. And that's probably a couple of days' journey in those days. Um, so, and that, that plays, I think, the, the novel is quite claustrophobic. Um, it's a very small village. And you know, even the the neighbouring villages, uh, where the landlord and the laird and the factor kind of live, uh, it all takes place in this little crucible, mm. I suppose. Mm. Um. You both seem much more interested in the psychology mm. of behind the crimes than you do in the murders themselves. Um, do you think that's? Would you say that's true? I mean, we, we know from the outset that yes. Roddy's done it. Yes. Yeah. We don't know who's been responsible for the triple murder uh, in your novel, but we get, we go d down so many other threads mm. of the story, and, and, but, and towards the end we, we realise what's happened. Um, but you're both categorised as crime novels, novelists, so I mean, is that a comfortable description for you? <laughs> what what do you think? Um, do you want to go? Um, so for me, I, I mean, crime is what, what I uh -huh. read. I, right. I love crime. So, so <laughs> I don't mind at all that, that it's sort of seen as, um, as a crime novel. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I call this a, a novel about a crime rather than a crime novel. Yeah. And uh, that may seem like a sort of uh, pedantic uh, distinction, but I am known for being rather pedantic. <laughs> um, but uh, the distinction in my mind really is that um, when you hear the words crime novel, and this is, you know, I, I love crime novels like everybody else, but I think sometimes there's an expectation about how the story will unfold. Yeah. You're yeah. presented to some extent with a mystery. Very often there's a character, a detective, a journalist, mm -hmm. or a civilian who is investigating, and as, you, as we move through the novel with them, we find out what's happening. Whereas I just give away everything at the beginning <laughs> of the book. Um, although I do keep a, a little bit of, uh, uh, I have an editor who says, oh, Graham, you know, uh, <laughs> keep a little bit of attention here. And he's absolutely right. Um, so, but uh, the, the, the reason for that is because I am absolutely interested in examining how Roddy, in his own mind, mm. came to commit these crimes mm. and then we as the, mm -hmm. uh, I'm investigating it as much as the reader is, um, trying to engage uh, with whether he's insane or not insane, how much of his uh, narrative do we believe or not believe. So that's the kind of, uh, I would hope, the sort of tension that mm. will work for the reader. But it's dif different in its construction from, I mean, I think anybody opening the book will realise it's not a normal crime novel. It's got footnotes in it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting how we have to classify. When yeah, I yeah. wrote the first yes, novel, I got, right, yeah. Yeah, I got um, three um, bookstores contacting me asking where I wanted it. Did yeah, I want yeah, it in yeah. the crime section yes. or in the gothic section yeah. or in the history? Yeah. I said, can't you put it in all three? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anything goes for yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think, I don't know how you feel, but I mean, 
uh, I don't, you don't set out, I'm going to write a no, crime novel, I'm no. going to write a historical novel, I'm going to write a gothic novel. You just set out to tell your story in yeah. the best the manner you think will work properly. So the question, is it a crime novel, is only one that comes kind of after the event, I think. And That's it true. comes to that sort of rather prosaic yeah. thing of like which part of the bookshop is yeah, it in. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I've also got the McCray Burnett thing going on. So is it in M or is it in B? <laughs> is it in crime? Is it in fiction? Oh, it's really it, hard to yeah. find my yeah. books. You know. Is yeah. it M or B, by the way? Well, it goes in B, okay. between, <laughs> between Bukowski and Camus. Uh, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a bit about more about narration uh, and mm. how you decided who, with which various voices were going mm. to help piece together mm. uh, Roddy's story. Mm. And you've also got mm. a very tricksy way of narrating your book. So mm. it, 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 I'd just be interested to hear of your views about the narr narrative voices, who you choose, uh -huh. who gives away what. Um. Well, Roddy was always the centre of the book, and that, that was the, the part I wrote first. And um, the, I also did various bits of research, so there was kind of historical and sort of cultural culture of the Highlands research that I did for Roddy's section. And there was all this 19th century criminal psychology writing, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, but I resisted uh, doing that research until I finished writing Roddy's section, because I didn't want to put stuff into Roddy's mm. narrative as knowing that I would then use it, I wanted my psychiatrist character uh, to come in and then analyse what Roddy had written. Um, so it was almost a kind of, almost a kind of method acting sort of uh, sort of approach. I mean, I'm not really answering your question, but I, I did want to have that the voice of the psychiatrist um, there um, because he's a totally fascinating character, and it's also like in moving towards the the question of whether he's insane or not, uh, these kind of voices. So, but it evolves through your research and you come, I was very lucky in some ways to come across this uh, Scottish character who was actually a, a influential criminal psychiatrist of the time, you know, and he, he wrote some articles that people treated with a great mm. deal of respect, you know, so mm. uh, yeah, he was great fun. Because he's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think for me, it's it's what you were saying yeah. before that whatever t you need to tell your story. So so you have mm. this sort of. Um, and I started. So Magnus, the main character, was always very clear to me, and and I knew he was going to sort of be. But um, and I had promised myself I wasn't going to do a book with several voices because I did that in my first book, uh -huh. and uh, it, it's quite cumbersome because you know you need to remember and you and I had said no, you know it's just going to be. Magnus, but he was just so um, um, straight-laced, mm -hmm. what do you say, uh -huh. and, and I needed someone to make him sort of, uh, who upset him a bit, um, and, and someone who, saw, and that's when Luvisa came in, and, and, uh, and then a third voice came in because the story just wasn't complete without, um, w without this third, so, so I think for me it was something that mm. grew, so I knew Magnus would be there, but the rest of them sort of added themselves on. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, do you think it just gives a kind of dynamic 
to the to the telling of the story when you've got yeah, these I different do. And I guess, um, on a different point of view. Yeah, and I guess because one of, of, of the sort of big things I wanted to work with in this map was uh, in this book was maps uh-huh. and how different people have different maps to navigate the same ter- territory. And uh, what do you do when your maps suddenly become obsolete? Uh-huh. You encounter something that you, you know, and your maps aren't working. And so I wanted to work with that. A- and I think then um, you needed these three people almost so that you would see completely different things in, in sort of when they looked at something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. I like Louisa, the, the sister-in-law that poor Magnus gets shackled <laughs> with. I like her too. Yeah, yeah. she yeah. starts <laughs> off being a very annoying character indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she, um, um, I like her very much, yeah, I I like uh, women who don't quite fit in, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) she's a good one. Um, Religion, Mm. interesting time to be setting um, your novel with, you know, the the Sami people being Mm. taught that uh, their old religion is obsolete and they should be, become, you know, sort of follow the church. Yeah. Um, can you say you, you were a great? Uh, you were pretty religious as a child, weren't you? Yes, yes. Um, so I grew up in, in and I think um, um, this was the case in most sort of, um, or in most, but but in many many villages up north, it was very religious, and especially my my parents and my grandparents um, sort of age, and and it was quite um, it was Pentecostal. Um, with a lot of rules and because you were in these small societies, small villages, it, it was very claustrophobic and, uh, and I think that has sort of put its imprint on, on all of us. Um, you know, I, I can even see how I talk to my daughters even though I don't want to and my husband is the opposite, he's a scientist, so my husband will show them sort of the, uh, and I will tell them a legend or I will tell them something and he would say, do you have to? And I say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of do. Mm-hmm. But so, um, so yeah, a lot of what I sort of think about is, is religion and God because, and I guess it is because I don't quite know how to, sort of it's braided in with my mm-hmm. backbone even though I don't want it to be. And even though my experience, my life experience, maybe tells me other things, um, it's very hard to find this sort of, very hard for me to know what mm. to believe and what to sort of think. So I do write a lot about it. Yeah. Mm. And it's a real tension, the Sami people, isn't it? Oh, it was, um, yeah. I think like for many indigenous people, it, it was um, it, it was the way it happened, wasn't it? It was, um, so their faith was, um, uh, was not allowed, uh, their drums were burnt, um, it was called devilry, any act mm. of sort of their um, traditional faith was, was um, they weren't allowed to speak their language um, and so on. And, and the really sad thing is that um, because they were an oral people, nothing was written down. So now, even though there are lots of people who would like to sort of go back to old roots, their old language, it doesn't exist mm. anywhere. So, uh, and that's, that's really such a loss. Mm. Um, it's a huge loss, yeah, yeah. And the, the church was, and, and when the book is set, um, there are almost no, um, according to the history, there were no more um, expressions of Sami faith. Um, but I sort of keep thinking, like myself, well, if you had grown up with that, would you not have it in your backbone, yeah. even though it wasn't allowed? And, and would you not sort of always live with that second possible world, even though it was forbidden? Mm. And of course, in Kuldui, there's the long arm of the church. Yeah, I mean, actually, um, I didn't really want to 
you can't really write a novel set in you know northwest Scotland in the 19th century without there being some role for the church. If anybody's read about the Highland Clearances, the role of the Church of Scotland, they don't come out of it too well, in my opinion. They, tend, they were associated with the landlord class, and they often preached a doctrine to the crofters to accept um, what fate was coming to them, and that their, their suffering was a, um, the fruit of their own sins. And so the, rather than fight back against the, their being cleared off the land, they should just accept it, and it was basically their own fault. Uh, and you know, I'm not. Um, I'm very far from being a religious person myself. Um, <laughs> but I felt like to make the the minister character, I, it was too easy a target for me just to have an evil minister. He does he does pop up a few times in the novel, mm. um, but that wasn't particularly interesting to me. But what what is more interesting is the kind of belief in providence, uh, which even. To, I, I think still infiltrates Scottish culture, and uh, even secular Scottish culture, when people say, what's for you won't go by you, mm. and things <laughs> like that. And, um, you know, and the, the, the belief in providence and fate mm. really is, you know, the novel is steeped in that. And um, when Roddy sort of sets off to commit his murders, and it's great that I can talk about this because it's at the beginning of the book. <laughs> um, you know, he goes off with the sense that, um, well, I'll, I'll go there. Um, and I will go there thus armed, um, but he just goes to see what will happen if he does that, and it's in the hands of Providence. That's what he tells himself. I mean, we don't know if that's what he really believes, but uh, so the belief in Providence, because that's like, I, I, my sort of background and sort of reading is sort of, you know, French existentialist sort of literature and Dostoevsky and stuff, and when you read Crime and Punishment, it's about the, the sort of issue of free will and uh, agency is a really interesting one to me. And when people talk about providence, mm -hmm. and uh, which is, uh, I suppose, uh, the antithesis of free will, uh, these mixing up all these mm -hmm. questions, which are only questions for me, I certainly don't uh, propose any answers. I don't know what the answers are, and the book doesn't attempt to do that. But all that, that kind of mixture of uh, these kind of religious or Presbyterian ideas and existentialism or a heady brew. <laughs> <laughs> could, could you say something about... It's a lager shandy. <laughs> <laughs> Roddy's main victim. Yes, Lachlan McKenzie. Uh, Lachlan McKenzie is uh, the village constable. Sometimes, I don't use the word in the book, but sometimes known as the burly man. He was kind of go-between between the factor and uh, the villagers and was elected in each community. So each community had his, their constable. And uh, Lachlan McKenzie uses his powers to kind of victimise uh, Roddy's family, or at least that's how Roddy's family uh, sees it. So he, he reduces the size of uh, uh, the McRae family's croft because Roddy's mother has died, so they have less need for land. And uh, at one point, uh, Roddy and his father are collecting seaweed, or seaware as it's known in the book, from the shore to put on their crops. And uh, Lachlan McKenzie comes down with his sort of sidekick cousin. He's a bit of an idiot, really. Um, comic relief. Um, <laughs> uh, and makes them take all the seaware and put it back on the shore because the seaware was the property of the, the laird and they did not have permission to take it. And uh, almost everything that happens between uh, Lachlan McKenzie and the McRae family, mm. uh, who are no relations, uh, <laughs> let's be clear, um, 
I came across, again, in the course of research, there's a book called Children of the Black House, um, which is about uh, crofting life in Skye. And there, there's a 25 page, uh, 25 regulations which were posted for the crofters. And you read this stuff, it's about you know, what you can do with your dog. Are you allowed to have a dog? And all the fishes in the, in the rivers and in the seas, the, sh the seaware on the shore is the property of the laird and cannot be taken without the laird's mm -hmm. explicit permission. Mm -hmm. So all these, a lot of the incidents and books were inspired by that document, which came from 1881, you know, so quite late. And you realize the mm -hmm. horrendous, oppressive conditions that the crofters lived under. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, Lachlan McKenzie, yeah, he's, I mean, he's a, he's a baddie, yeah. you know, and um, I have my trusted reader, as I'm sure Cecilia does, who you give your drafts to. And uh, I, I kept asking her, is he bad enough? <laughs> um, and she's like, oh yes, yeah. <laughs> he's bad enough. Yeah. I had in my mind, I don't know if anybody's seen the, the film Blue Velvet, and there was a character played by uh, Dennis Hopper in that film called Frank Booth. Oh, and uh, when Frank Booth first appears in the film, and he does some really terrible, horrible things, um, Every time you see Frank Booth after that in the film, you're like, oh my God, what's he going to do? <laughs> and you just see him for the first time. He doesn't really have to do anything else that's bad, uh, but you're, you're terrified of him. And uh, so Lachlan Broad is my Frank Booth. Uh, <laughs> and he's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, did you secretly kind of like him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're a bad girl. <laughs> let's just, before we open it up to questions, what if, let's talk about fathers. Mm. You've both got, I mean, you know, the, the relationship between children and fathers in both books. Uh, I mean, it was quite pretty devastating portraits, both for Magnus's uh, adopted father and Louisa's natural father and Roddy's, the relationship between Roddy and his father. Do you want us to say something about those mm. really difficult um, relationships? Ooh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think... Um, um, to me, uh, a lot of it is is this um, what we were talking about before with the shift in time, and that often fathers um, or, or or when something shifts very fast, you can have people from different generations being so different and being so um, uh, unable to understand each other. Um, and and so so again, I I do like that I, because it's your, your father is supposed to be your closest one, mm -hmm. and I do like when you have that sort of big shift, and they just cannot um, understand and and sort of and connect. Um, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I th I think there's that sort of. I mean, Roddy's father is very much a man of the church. He clings to his. He clings to the mm -hmm. teachings of the church. I mean, we. We don't know. He's not a very communicative mm. chap, and um, and Roddy Roddy's a bright kid at school. And the teacher comes and tells Roddy's father that you know, Roddy could do better than be a crofter, which of course is very offensive to Roddy's father. Um, but you know, I think it's like there is there's a, you know there's always that generational mm. kicking against the older generation. And I, I was conscious writing the book about. Which I'm not sure if it's really answering your question, but. I wanted the characters to have recognisable, you know, modern emotions. I mean, mm -hmm. quite often when you read about the Scottish Highlands, the, the crofters mm -hmm. are kind of idealised as sort of, uh, or they're seen purely as victims, or they're seen as kind of noble in their suffering. Um, 
so I kind of wanted to make them sort of more just three-dimensional mm -hmm. sort of characters. So Roddy has a kind of sidekick pal called Archie Ross. He's a bit of a sort of white boy, and he knows about the girls and all that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so it's the, the weird influences on the book, sort of, I was thinking about, you know, I'm sure you're all big fans of The Inbetweeners. Pure um, <laughs> uh, Channel 4 comedy about teenage boys. But it's like, I wanted Roddy and his pal, they, they, they would be the same. So they go to the local, the summer gathering, and the girls are all out in their dresses. So they're going to be just like the guys from the in-betweeners <laughs> going, go on, go and talk to her, you know. Um, so it was, you know, and that, that's getting away from your question, probably because my father is in the audience. <laughs> um, um, Mine's not, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think a sort of generational rebellion is, mm. you know, whether you're in a 19th century crofter or a 19 child of the 1980s yeah. like me, it's probably just part of growing up. Yeah. Um, um, let's move on. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Before we do open up, you said something earlier, Graham, and I think it's uh, interesting for us just to spend some time thinking about it. Room for the reader. Yeah. How do you leave that room for the reader in your narrative? Mm. So there's that time, that mm. opportunity for the reader to come to conclusions. Mm. Do you want to start us off? Well, I mean, I, yeah, just when I was asking you about the dyna dynamism yeah. of the, the three voices, I've only read the first book, but mm. um, you, when you have those kind of conflicting views of the same mm. events, for me, that's the point where the reader mm. is engaged. And, uh, and I, I, of course, I, I'm a primarily, a, we're all primarily readers, um, and I want to make up my own mind about the events in, in a novel and not be given sort of solid answers. Mm. So because I use this sort of structure where there are different voices in the mm. novel, the story is actually told very chronologically through these voices. Um, but even when we come to the trial, one side is pleading that Roddy is insane and should be, uh, you know, escape the gallows. And the other side is saying the opposite. But it's really the only person who can make up their mind about that is the reader because Although we do find out what happens to Roddy, you can have your own view about it. And that, to me, that's absolutely <laughs> important. And uh, I want that active engagement with the book rather mm. than mm. here's the answer. You, you, at the end of the book, you find out who done it and you can go to bed and sleep well. You're not going to sleep well after my book. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no, and I love that about, about your book, that, that, you, um, that you have to change your mind. Yeah. As you go through the reading right. of it, and so on, you have to change, and that's fantastic as right. a reader when you sort of go, whoa, <laughs> you know, and it's sort of you, you have to ch change how you're thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. about things. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, and there are well in Wolf Winter there are kind of revelations that come as yeah. a surprise, and you you do you then you think oh maybe I missed something or yeah. Yeah, probably I and did, there's no better books when you uh -huh. when you sort of have to backtrace yeah, in yeah, your yeah, head yeah, and yeah, think wait 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 or wait, you you, yeah. you reassess something you've <laughs> yes. already read in light yes, of what you find exactly. out you know. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, no, that's uh, that's super. Yeah. yeah, and is that quite hard to do as a writer? So that you've you've maybe gone through your first and second draft, and then you think you look at a section, and think I let too much away there. Well, I think um, I, I think sometimes your trusted readers will tell yeah, you yeah, because yeah, yeah, you absolutely. do get blind to your own writing yeah. after a while. And I find um, a number of times that I sort of come to something, and I think, well, actually this is where you need a shift and then you kind of need to go back and rework mm -hmm. the strand sort of backwards so that it it works 
Um, but again, you, you do get blind to your own writing. You, you yeah. spend so much time yeah. with these people in, in yeah. the book that it's you It's very sort of difficult to gauge the effect yeah. of what you're writing on yeah. the reader, and that's why you need your trusted reader or your editor yeah. to go yeah. to tell you. And of course, it's a back and forth process. Is, you go yeah. back, just yeah. tweak a little bit, yeah. maybe you know, up a little bit of yeah. um, the cut. And the it's aspect. so little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It can be a, a, yeah. a few words yeah. or taking some words out. Yeah. yeah. So, how long did it take to write? Uh, it took me about two and a half years, which I think is pretty, including the research, I think that's mm. not bad. That's yeah. really good, yeah. I mean, because I waste too much time. I'm actually amazed I've ever managed to write a novel at all. I mean, <laughs> I just generally, I, I go to the Mitchell Library in Glasgow to, um, to write because there's no distractions there. I still find distractions. Um, and I generally just sit there. I've actually got a friend who's a librarian. Every time he walks past, I'm embarrassed because I'm not doing anything. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that I have actually managed to produce a book. I don't know how I did it. Um, <laughs> and it's hard with the second novel as well, isn't it? Cecilia? Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was very hard, and and I think um, because you know it's going to be a book, mm. you, you know, and and yeah, yeah. when you write the first one, yeah. it's just a labour of, yeah. you know, pain, love, pain. <laughs> pain. <laughs> yeah. but um, it is different. Yeah. And then the second yes. one, you know, it's going to be a book, so the pressure is on. Mm. And also, I think you you then have you've learned some things from the first one, but maybe not enough. Um, so you have all this, uh, I found myself doubt myself and sort of say, well, is it too similar or not yeah, similar yeah, yeah. enough? And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you shouldn't even be yeah. listening to that note because Absolutely. that's noise. Yeah, you could um, try, just try and turn my brain off. I say yeah, to myself, yeah. all those voices going, yeah, yeah. You're, you're shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. I'm uh, going to. You know, <laughs> uh, just don't so, listen. Uh, yeah, no, so, so, so the second one I thought it was like pulling teeth all the way until the end. And then it yeah. was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully the third one would be better. Yeah. Should we have the lights up? And uh, we've got a roving mic. Just put your hand up. Oh, and a first question here in the middle. Thank you very much. Um, I read your book, Graham, for the James Tate Black Prize oh, yeah. as your student reader, and I was massively impressed. Thank you very and much. I have recommended it to everybody that I know. Including I love you. Including, <laughs> 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 Thanks. including my friend sitting next to me. Uh -huh. um, my question was, during my reading of the novel, one book kept popping into my mind uh -huh. that really... Do you want me to guess what it is? Go on. Justified Sinner? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I was justified in that then, uh, in that case. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we, we were actually talking before about influences and stuff. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, in case anybody doesn't know, James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner is a real seminal Scottish novel from late 18th century. I mean, what's uh, most interesting, the comparison, I think, is the fact that it's constructed as a, there's the editor's narrative and there's the narrative. Um, I mean, I read Justified Sinner years and years back, um, and I did reread it um, in the course of writing uh, his bloody project. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think the whole um, uh, sort of found documents thing—it's—it's uh, not—it's not to me. It's just a way of telling the story. And Justified Sinner is a book that tells the story in that way. If you look at something like the Wilkie Collins and Moonstone, it's told as a series of diaries and narratives. So they're quite a common strategy in 19th-century fiction. Um, at the end of the day, you want to tell a compelling narrative, and I want the reader to engage with the character, with Roddy. I want you to root for Roddy. Um, so all the sort of folder all about structure is neither here nor there if you don't care about the characters and feel uh, compelled to read on and you know, want to know what's happening in the story. 
I don't even know what your question was. I, <laughs> I actually answered your own question. Justified Sinner. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Are, you, are you a fan of Justified Sinner? Um, I read it many years ago uh, as an undergrad and it uh, stuck in my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the other thing that, that brought it to mind for me in comparison with your novel was the mixture of fact and fiction mm -hmm. and the mystery yeah. that that generates and I found that really yeah. interesting yeah, as well. Thanks. Um, so thank you very much. I very much enjoyed it. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Questions there? Hello. My question is for Cecilia. I am a big fan. Not oh, only did I recommend the book, I made my book club read it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and they didn't get a say. Um, <laughs> you now live in my homeland in Canada. Wow. And I wonder if when you hike in the Rockies, are you getting a different feeling than when you were hiking in Sweden? Is there a different atmosphere? In Yes. So, so I'm. Um, I thought. So, so I'm. I'm so fortunate to live now where I live. So I, I live in the Canadian Rocky Mountains, and I'm absolutely loving it. And, um, but it is wild. And I thought I knew sort of wilderness and nature and so on coming from the north of Sweden and having done a lot of sort of, um, and I'm blown away. And I con continuously have to remind myself that, you know, you can get really lost here and never come back. And I have to be more careful with sort of planning my hikes and, and so on. Um, it, it is daunting. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, question here. Thank you. Again, a question for Cecilia. Yeah. I love both of your books. Oh, thank you. But I did wonder about the second one. How realistic was it that Magnus was not recognised as being part Sammy? Because they seem to look mm. very different, the Sammy. From yeah. Well, <coughs> I think, um, I mean, there are. Uh, we had in our family a, a blue-eyed um, Sammy now long, long, long back. So I think the, the, the genes are sort of, um, and um, it's, it's difficult to say now, nowadays even more so, um, you know, just by look, who is Sami and who is not. But of course, you take your own sort of, um, you, take, you take your freedoms when you write and, and you sort of, you make the story work, if you like. Um, but I think it could have happened, I do. So much, this is a question for Graham. Mm -hmm. um, you had introduced a character, Mrs. Murchison, yes. with her six daughters. Yes. And there seemed to be a, a continual, slightly oblique reference to her beauty. Yes. And, and even... Carmina Smoke is her nickname. Yes. Uh. <laughs> and even the Times correspondent felt obliged to tell his readers how beautiful she was. Yes. Why did you not develop her character beyond that? Because... Uh. She sounded great. <laughs> well, uh, well I'm, yeah, I'm glad you were engaged by her. I mean, uh, the, the obviously, Roddy's narrative is written in the first person, so um, it's, she only exists through the, her role in Roddy's story. Um, and as with all secondary characters, uh, you know, you try to, I'm sure it's the same for you, even though they may only have a, a small walk-on part in the novel, you try to... Um, develop them in a little way that gives makes them seem like a you know the fact that you remember you know Mrs. Murchison is a sort of small achievement to me as a writer um, but you can only develop the character insofar as they, she has a role in relation to Roddy's narrative um, because that is the absolute rigid fundamental principle of writing in the first person um, and uh, you know she appears at the trial as well um, so you do get those the Times correspondence, rather salacious comments about her. Um, but yeah, you, it's just um, respecting 
your mode of narration and you know you can't wander off into her house and find out when you know what she's up to or so yeah i'm glad maybe maybe i need to write a sequel you know <laughs> carmina returns yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's, a, it's an interesting question. But mm. I mean, there's another aspect that I was asked about before about the landscape and stuff. It's an exceptionally beautiful part of the world. And, um, and as you know, I've spent quite a lot of time up there. And um, the local people don't generally spend a lot of time going, oh my God, look at these beautiful mountains. Oh, the light on the sea. But everyone who visits there goes, oh my God, look at these beautiful <laughs> mountains, the light on the sea. And so Roddy very rarely comments on his surrounding area because for him, it would be completely mundane, just as for me walking along Soggy Hall Street's mundane. It wouldn't be a matter of comments. And it, that's while I would have liked to sort of indulge my writerliness in you know, some lovely descriptions of mountains and sea, it's probably beyond me. You can do that stuff. <laughs> um, you know, I couldn't do it because Roddy, I don't think Roddy would have commented on it. And it's the same with principle with Carmina Smoke. Um. Anybody else? I just want to ask you both. There's one in the oh, middle. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'll save my question for later. There's a tentative hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't manage to get hold of his bloody project, so I bought <laughs> your, your previous book, yes. The Disappearance of Adele Bidot, yep. which I loved. Thank you. Um, how do you, but obviously that's sort of modern France, takes place in modern France. Yeah. Uh, again, Ish. it's a, a crime. Mm. Uh, an awful about a crime, or at least it's incidental, the crime uh, is incidental. Uh, yeah. Where do you choose both time and setting for your novels? Um, where, where do you get that from? Well, the, 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 it's interesting because you've asked about setting before, and uh, the first novel is set in a small town in France, which um, I go to great uh, pains to describe as being extremely boring and nondescript. Um, I actually visited that town, um, so I'll be even less popular <laughs> there than I am in Kaldui. Um, but I was just really inspired by the place, and um, I was sitting in the place that is the restaurant de la cloche. It's actually called Restaurant de la Poste <laughs> um, in real life. And uh, you know, I was watching the characters in, in that environment, and I felt this feeling of claustrophobia again. And uh, the, it, the, that novel just developed um, from from that having sat in that uh, restaurant or brasserie traditional cafe. Um, in terms of, interestingly, for me, writing that novel, because when you're in these sort of small towns in France, as an outsider anyway, I have a feeling of unchangingness and timelessness. Uh, the menus never change and stuff like that, and everybody goes there until they die. And, um, and uh, I, I actually erased all references to time when I was writing it. It does actually, in the finished book, there are, you, you can locate it in time. By, there was no references to, for example, the currency is always referred to as currency or banknotes rather than francs or euros, so that you couldn't say when it was set. So I was kind of ma making it into a sort of a no-time sort of zone. Um, but the, the setting is really important to me. Mm. Yeah. Just to finish, is there anything you could, will allow us to know about your next projects? Cecilia. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, well, so I think I'm, I'm, um, I'm sort of moving, I'm, I'm just researching now and I'm moving forward in town, in, ti in town, in time. Mm. But I will probably stick with the mountain for one more, 
one more book, um, and I'm looking at the the Second World War. Um, which was hugely, Norway, Sweden and Finland were so um, intertwined, the, the sort of the countries have been, uh, but during the Second World War they took different stances, so Sweden was neutral, um, Norway fought um, uh, Germany and Finland fought with Germany, mainly to find, fight um, Russia, but, which is a hugely mm. interesting sort of setup. Um, so that's where I'm spending time mm. right now, and, and um, it's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> very exciting. I think it's really interesting. You're kind of writing. I don't know. Would you call it a trilogy? Well, it, uh, yeah, it's becoming but one. It's a yeah. trilogy where the setting is yeah. the main character, mm. and you're shifting from century to century. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has done that. It's no, and and it wasn't uh, supposed to be. But the more uh, I sort of get into it, the more uh, you know, the setting to me is yeah. has a voice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it's very the, the novel, the first novel, yeah. it's, it's got this great oppressive presence. <laughs> So the mountain is a character, mm. you yeah. know, and it's like, is the mountain the guilty party here? <laughs> I mean, it really it feels like that, you know. So I mean, I want to go back to that. I'm a bit scared. Oh. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. No. So. So. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Have you? Oh, I was just trying to deflect. <laughs> <you know>. I know. <laughs> um, I've written. Nice I'm in the process of writing a sequel to oh. the first book. Um, Oh, uh, the disappearance of Adele Badeau. So I'm back in the small town of Saint Louis because um, I, I love it there. Um, and it, so it features the, the cop, George Gorsky. So it's kind of uh, a novel where very little happens. And then, and then is it a crime? I am not sure. Maybe it's an accident. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I did, I, went, I was at a little crime festival um, up north uh, a couple of years ago when I was talking to quite a renowned uh, crime writer. And um, I told her, we'd had a few drinks, I told her that um, I, my ambition was to write a crime novel without a crime in it, and she just looked like I was an absolute idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she was probably right. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll wait and see. Yeah. We're going to go to the book tent now, where you're going to be signing copies of your books. Can I, we just ju end by thanking them both, Cecilia and Graham, very much. Thank indeed. you. Terrific. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.